Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Kyle Grant and I beat the often path by making laundry and wet cleaning sexy. Welcome back to the Beat the Oven Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. On this show, we showcase unusual success stories to really help us think outside of the box in our lives and our careers, and to help us tell and shape a better story for our own lives and business. If there's one thing we've learned so far, it's that the little things add up. And we've also learned that we can find gold in the most unexpected of places, both for ourselves personally and for the environment and our planet, like laundry. Have you ever thought about the implications of your laundry? Because Dr. Kyle Grant has, and it's an incredibly harmful industry that's been outdated for way too long. Dr. Grant created a startup just a few years ago called Oxwash, and his unique take on industrial laundry is already revolutionizing the industry in his native UK. He's developed groundbreaking new methods for reducing microplastics from laundry, dramatically reducing energy and water consumption, and just generally transforming this horribly polluting industry. He's been listed to Forbes 30 Under 30 Social Entrepreneurs. He's received a number of highly prestigious awards. He's raised millions and millions of dollars of capital from big names like Biz Stone, and he's generally up to something remarkable. So I'm deeply humbled to be joined today by Dr. Kyle Grant, founder of Oxwash. And I'd like to begin this episode, as I promised, by singing an ode to, uh, to oxen. So you come in from the fields... Obviously, your oxen are dirty, and your product helps clean your oxen, right? It's ox wash. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> We've never cleaned a cow, but I would love to. I mean, why not? <laughs> oh, wait, that's, that's not what your company does? Oh, man, no. here, I have page after page of yokes about oxen. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay, I'm utterly disappointed in myself. I was, that was a, a I horrible. Was, I was <laughs> You're like this guy. He didn't do his homework. I was like, Come on. Maybe, maybe it's really, really good, or it's really bad. It's really good, or it's really I'm going bad. On the good side. Okay, all right, all right. No, but what I really want to start by saying that Cambridge is the best school in the world. Boat race champions uh, 85 times. The winningest boat race team, as we all know. The longest winning streak. How do you feel about that as a, an alum of Oxford? Yeah, I think you're poking the snake intentionally, <laughs> and I'm going to rise. I'm going to rise to it. Okay. <laughs> I think what, what Oxford uh, doesn't do, or what doesn't have in prestige on the rivers, it certainly does have in the washing machines and ironing presses of the future. Let's put it that way. Okay. Very good. <laughs> very very delicately handled. I was trying to find a Cambridge fight song to sing to you, but I couldn't find one on Google. So I thought, like, with 800 years, they couldn't find a social media manager. So there is that, you know. How is this yeah, not easy to find? To yeah, so anyways. <laughs> all right, to the, to the story at hand. What is it that you really do? And what is your company actually here to solve? Of course, yeah. So I'll be completely honest. I kind of stumbled into the laundry and cleaning space completely by accident when I was doing a PhD at Oxford University in something called synthetic biology, all around genetic manipulation of crops, um, helping us to live in space and in arid deserts, all sorts of things. But my core focus um, then and in a prior life in aerospace was life support systems. How do you take to space or to an outpost all the resources you need to live perpetually, the water, the energy, food, all of that good stuff? Turns out, that clothing and textiles don't have a good life support system. And the way that 
we wash clothes, whether it's our jeans, T-shirts, dresses, suits, even the bedding that we sleep in, typically pollutes the planet in a really big way and in a way that's completely opaque to most people around the world. You know, you go into a laundromat or you have a washing machine at home, you put your dirty items in the front of a chrome machine with a nice touchscreen and it comes out smelling amazing and looking great. But what goes down the drain at the back is awful, super toxic. And if you scale that up to big laundry facilities, often the bleach, the non-biodegradable chemistry, the microfibers of polyester, basically plastic, all going down the drain and into water, the drain, and then eventually the oceans is a huge problem. And all of the energy that's used to wash and then dry and then press all those items again and again and again is massive. Um, In the UK, super small country, it would take 100 million trees, 100 years to sequester all the carbon that's generated from laundry in our small country. It's crazy. And and what time frame is that per year? Yeah, that's in 100 years, it would take 100 years, 100 million trees. Unbelievable. (laughs) It's expensive to heat water, right? And you're using thousands of liters of it. And then to heat air, to tumble dry things, it's just crazy. And most of the time, that energy just comes from coal or gas. That is shocking. So I didn't know the depth of this. This is going to be a great chat. I can tell already. Um, All right. Well, before we jump into the actual platform, so I saw that you were working at NASA at a certain point. So tell me about your education. So obviously, you achieved your doctorate. How did that part go before you founded this company? Yes. So I was back doing a undergraduate um, honours degree at Cardiff University, the capital of Wales here in the UK. Um, and it was all around microbiology um, and then kind of segued into doing a project on using algae as a life support system basis rather than um, pretty harsh scrubbing chemicals. Um, got an internship, turned into a co-op, turned into a full-time position in the States at the Kennedy Space Center, which wow. was awesome. Um, and then did quite a lot of work kind of after that, a little bit of a secondment over to SpaceX as well in the early days, which was absolutely eye-opening. Um, and as you can imagine, it's changed quite a lot since back in the day when you're in a big garage, basically bolting together parts of a spaceship. Um, but it was when my visa expired that I came back and uh, kind of started the PhD to then potentially look to go back into aerospace, but then got sucked into this lovely, wonderful world of washing instead. Yeah. Did you want to stay in the U.S. or were you done? Um, yeah, I think back then, definitely. Yeah, 100%. And between SpaceX and NASA, nobody could figure out an extension for your visa? Well, it's tricky. Um, so you, I was on a J-1 visa, which back then had a very strict time limit ah. on it, and rightly so, right? Um, and there's also ITAR um, kind of qualifications you have to pass around. You know, you are basically tinkering with an international, intercontinental ballistic missile, even if it is meant to have people on it. So there's all sorts of hoops you have to jump through right. um, that got harder and harder. So decided to come back to do the PhD as then the route in again, um, but then found this new mission instead. Right. I've seen James Bond. I know how that goes. You put a tiny little chip on the inside of the part that you're supposed to be <laughs> welding and suddenly you're tracking everything in the United States. I think uh, I think they it. made the right choice. 
Uh, <laughs> no, rubber. but that's that is <laughs> as awesome of a background as I've heard yet. Not too many people come from that kind of background. That's truly fascinating. I mean, SpaceX, NASA, that's cutting edge. And you raise interesting points. Um, I've often thought about uh, microplastics, but not from that perspective. I think many of us who have been watching the news or who follow these kinds of things know that microplastics are in general an issue. It's been said that mm. people consume a credit card's worth of microplastic per week via water or other means. So for me, I was looking towards sources like my drinking water, and that led me to purchase what we have this company called a Berkey filter, which is this very slow filter, but it supposedly filters out all that stuff, and I drink all of my water through that because you can't trust the tap water, certainly here in the U.S., and certainly, certainly here in Los Angeles. So I'd been thinking about it more from that aspect. I hadn't been thinking about it from the aspect of where is the stuff actually coming from and certainly hadn't been thinking that my laundry might be the cause of this. So how did you make that leap? You're trying to make something sustainable for space missions. How did you decide that laundry was the culprit of a lot of this stuff? Mm. So I think what really attracted me to this space and the industry as a whole is that it's very unsexy. You know, people don't go to university, to graduate school and say, I want to go and revolutionize the way we wash knickers and socks. Right. right. It's not something typically. Especially fine, after SpaceX, it it's like rocket ships. Yeah. <laughs> socks. Yeah. But uh, I mean it's really, really ripe for innovation because of that, right? So there's a lot of technologies that have been maybe developed in some industries that just have never had a look in, in washing. Um, and that means you can make a lot of gains in this space quite quickly using common sense and quite frankly, stealing other technologies, modifying them, innovating uh, and bolting them together. What really interests me though, is this next kind of almost valley that we're going into now of um, recreating new ways of washing and drying things. You know, can you dry things using ultrasonic vibrations rather than in a tumble dryer? You know, Ooh. those weird and wonderful tools that um, you'd never think of if you just kind of, you know, worked in a facility for your whole life. Um, you know, your mum did it, you did it, you do it the same way. So I like that. And I think because it's such a big problem that people aren't aware of, as soon as you lift the lid and say, actually, here's all the shit that just came off your jumper, they go, oh, vom. Okay, I'm going to pay you to help me fix this problem. Ugh. And e even better, so I would like to join you on your mission and work as part of the team to make real change. So because of that purpose, and it's very clear what we're trying to do, we've been able to get some really talented people to join, join our team. So that's very rewarding as well. This episode is brought to you by the new credit card from Capital One, Microplastic. It's the first credit card that you don't need to order because it's already inside your body. You ate it in your food and drank it in your water. Millions of undetectable microplastics already in your body now, just from the last week of being alive. All you have to do is activate the new credit card's worth of plastic you've unintentionally ingested. Microplastic from Capital One. What's in your gastrointestinal tract? So you joined forces, I saw, with an Oxford engineer, Tom uh, DeWilton, I believe I'm pronouncing that hopefully correctly. Um, so at this point, uh, what, what did you exactly set out to do in the early days? What was the first seed of this idea? Mm. So the first bit was actually how do you move laundry around without generating even more CO2 particulates, traffic, things like that. Here in the UK, Oxford specifically, it's a very small congested city 
you know, ancient roads that were meant for horses and carts, not for massive articulated lorries bringing hundreds of tons of linen uh, to hotels and gyms and things like that, right? Um, so when you look at, you know, let's say a kilogram of laundry that somebody generates either in their business or their home, and then they send it to somebody else to wash and then bring it back, about 40% of the CO2 emitted is in the logistics, just Oof. moving the shit from the person or business Oof. to the washing facility and back. So we decided, no, no, that's that's got to stop. So we tested lots of different assets, logistics, and the platforms for moving things around, mopeds, electric, you know, normal gas ones, um, cars, vans, and eventually ended up on this very new asset called an electric cargo bike, which looks a little bit like a love child between a small van and a bike that you'll go riding at weekends on. And they're awesome. Honestly, they're, they're absolutely fantastic. They're very much like a little urban spaceship. You know, they're very quick, agile. They knit through traffic. They don't generate any CO2. And critically, they're hyper-visible. You know, people see them and go, what the hell is that? And then they're on Google. They find our website. They understand the mission. And then you acquire your customers through just eyesight rather than, you know, blasting hundreds of thousands of pounds on TV ads and Google ads and stuff like that. So that was the first kind of part we wanted to solve for, get our asset and the logistics software, re-optimization, things like that working harmoniously and then obviously the biggest problem the bit where we we had a lot of innovation is how do you clean something without polluting the planet what technologies can you use what chemistries water reclamation systems do we need to innovate design to do that um, so that's been our mission ever since is iterating on that and we've got multiple facilities where we're testing different things to try to get to that nirvana of a wash load that produces no co2 no microplastics down the drain no what we call bioactive chemistry that obviously eviscerates the ecosystem and we're getting close um, but we're not there yet okay so the first machine how did you start building what did you start creating Mm. So we call our facilities lagoons, um, okay. and that's only because the floor is blue, bright blue, <laughs> okay. and looks a bit like a swimming pool, but we can't call them pools because that's weird. Um, and the first facility, we partnered with a equipment manufacturer in Spain to design and build a system for us where if you take a normal washing machine, we've bolted on a water filtration and reclamation system. So in essence, when you do a wash cycle at home or in a laundrette, you'll do some pre-rinses with water, a main wash cycle where you have your detergent, maybe some emulsifiers, things like that. And then final rinses where you rinse all of that away and maybe add a conditioner or softener at the end to give you the nice smell and the texture. So in our system, that wash water and the final rinses is reclaimed into a tank and then we reuse that water for the pre-rinses of the next wash load. Mm -hmm. And you save between 40 and 60% of the water per wash load doing that. And at the same time, you're able to filter out the microfibers that leach and come off the clothes as you're washing them, which means it doesn't go down the drain, which is great. Um, we also try to wash things cold. So whatever temperature water comes out the cold tap, we wash at that temperature by and large. And that's great because it saves enormously on energy costs. But as you can imagine, it doesn't remove stains or disinfect things incredibly well. So we've mm. had to develop new formulations of chemistry with some partners. Um, here in the UK, there's one called Vanish, 
which is a little bit like um, Oxy Action, I think it's called in the States. OxyClean. Um, we had like these famous simulator. infomercials back in the day. Yeah. A very famous it. guy. Super similar to that. Yes. Okay. This is it. It's a sim- <laughs> he was on similar to something. principle. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think, unfortunately, he was onto it probably with bleach, which is really yeah, nasty. <laughs> so we're trying to get on the same result without that crap, you know, mm. that typically you put down the toilet, um, which is great. But disinfecting at low temperatures is the biggest problem, especially with COVID, right? Like, how does somebody trust you to take your clothes, their clothes away? wash them, not cover them with somebody else's COVID particles mm. and then ship them back. So we use something called ozone to disinfect our laundry at low temperatures. In fact, it doesn't work above 30, 40 degrees. Um, and that's super simple. We generate ozone gas from the air that we breathe in something called a corona, basically like flowing air through a lightning storm in a tube. And then we bubble that up through the laundry as it's washing and that oxidizes all the bacteria, fungi, viruses, um, critically, and has the added bonus of any body odor and nasty smells. It gets rid of that and deodorizes as well. So there's a couple of different pieces of the washing puzzle to, uh, to wet your whistle. That's truly remarkable. And at the end, if you're not putting these microplastics down the drain, do you just end up with giant chunks of plastic? Or how do you, what do you do with all of that? Yeah, I'll be honest, we're storing it at the moment because we're trying to figure out what to do with it. You know, we've got honestly bags of this stuff and it's tricky because it's a real mix of stuff. You know, the filter isn't selective. It'll filter out the microfibers of polyester, cotton, nylon, dog hair, cat hair, bits of food, like the lot. So Mm -hmm. it's now down to what do we do with that? Um, There's lots of ideas of could you use it to make loft insulation, for example, because actually it's latent heat capacity is very good Um, could we compress it and make packaging potentially it's something that we'll likely find a partner to help us to obviously um, produce a product from but we're storing it until we get that right rather than it going into landfill or anything else god forbid right so what's the ratio how many loads of laundry produce how many pounds of this stuff Yeah. So if you were to take a week load, uh, like an individual person's week load of laundry, which is probably four to seven loads, something like that, you would get probably the amount of microplastics you'd find in the weight of an iPhone, uh, which is in this case a Max, so the bigger one. Yeah, It's a lot. It is a lot. It depends on the items, but something like a fleece will leach a lot more microfibers than something like a sports vest. Um, which has much tighter packed fibers. Um, and obviously the temperature, the aggravation of like, you know, how fast you spin the machine and things like that has a massive impact as well. That's uh, that's interesting. And, you know, here, I don't know how it is, but the propaganda, propaganda machine here in the United States is always in full swing around these kinds of topics. Whenever this is mentioned on the news, they'll say things like consuming of microplastics is inconclusive or it hasn't been proven to be harmful to the body or it's probably fine. It just passes through the body. And it was recently discovered Mm. that I think it, you know, through DuPont and other of these major manufacturers, these forever chemicals that perpetually live for hundreds or thousands of years in our water supply. And the party line has officially sort of been, it's probably fine. But those of us Mm. who think more ecologically intuitively know that it probably causes cancer or various other horrible things. 
Do you have any more definitive research on what the damage actually is? Mm, this is a really tough one. So the Lancet um, came out with a study a year ago now where they took biopsies of people from all around the world um, of the kind of cutaneous fatty tissue um, around your skin and some biopsies of the fats around your organs. And every single one of the biopsies that they took, and this is hundreds of thousands, had microplastics in them, which is terrifying. So it seems like the yes. microplastic aggregates in the fatty tissues of our bodies, which um, is a benign area to be. You know, it's better that they aggregate there than your brain, for example. But I think they might the be in my brain, but effect, that's another story. <laughs> and mine as well. Um, you know, the long-term effects of that, we just don't know because the concentration of microplastics is really only started to peak in the last five years. So what happens if you know, blood clotting and downstream health issues only occur 20 years later than a certain threshold of concentration? We wouldn't know that yet. I think what's most likely going to happen is in 10 to 15 years, there'll be big studies showing a correlation between microplastic accumulation or bioaccumulation in our bodies and health issues. Um, and unfortunately, it'll probably be too late by that time to remove any of the harmful microfibers from the ocean because they're tiny, right? And they come straight back up the food chain. When they're in the sea, they're thinner than a human hair and just almost invisible, right? If you took a net and tried to filter them out, you'll be collecting as much plankton as you would be microfibers. So our adage is you filter them at source, right? They don't go anywhere near the sea, but that's a real exception. For the most part, they just fly down rivers through sewage treatment plants into the ocean, and then they bioaccumulate in small fish, bigger fish, we eat the biggest fish, and then, oh, hey, presto, they're inside us, which is the bit that terrifies me. Sure. And is there not the thought then of installing some kind of global filter on your house so all wastewater goes through some sort of filter or shower or drains or anything, not just the washing machine? Yes. So I there's two ways I see of doing this. One is, you know, legislation and policy around having to mandate the OEMs, the original equipment manufacturers, build filters into machines that produce waste. You know, this already exists in the drying tumble dryer industry like you collect your lint right it doesn't just fly doesn't into just the room into the air, and yeah. then just clog it up True. you know what i mean like yes. you do collect it and you empty out your filter you do. and that's because it's been it's been mandated in that way and i guarantee in the next five years the uk will definitely see that legislation um other countries like france for example already have it um so no new washing machines past 2023 will be able to be sold without a microfiber filter so that kind of gets the first part of the problem. I think to put in filtration systems to treat your entire grey water, what goes you know, from your shower, the toilet, the sink, the washing machine is very complex. Um, typically, there's two types of filter, passive or active. Passive is just a net, right? It flows through and typically gravity is what pulls the fluid through and the crap collects in the net. In the net. Active filters spin the water, often like a centrifuge. So the crap collects on the outside and then your water can flow through the middle. Um, 
there are pros and cons to both systems. Cost, obviously, is one of the biggest differences. Active uh, filtration systems are typically 10 to 20 times the price and fail. Anything that moves with right. moving parts and electronics and mechanics oh, fails at some point, right? Yep. Yeah, but the passive filters are cheaper, but they clog a lot faster. So can people really be asked to twice a day go down to you know the drain line and like change out filters probably not. i have surveyed so. all people and the answer is no <laughs> i have done a mental survey <laughs> of all busy. humans and the answer is no we don't tend I to like to do anything that inconveniences us i've noticed exactly yeah i think a combination of washing machine level filtration and changes to our sewage treatment plants as well um, we'll be able to remove, you know, 95% at source and then the other 5% at sewage treatment level. And is the primary way that this comes back into our body just from drinking water or are there other means that we consume it back? Yeah, breathing it in is the most terrifying, Ugh. but the main ways are eating it, drinking it, breathing it. Um, and you, I don't quote me on the percentages, but I think from that study... They hypothesized that around 40% came from eating, so bioaccumulation. So these microfibers typically accumulate around phytoplankton, um, and then plankton, and then fish eat that, and the bioaccumulation comes up the food chain into us. Um, drinking water is less. I think drinking water was something like 30%. And then the final 30%, which is a really weird and wonderful part, is just breathing it in from the air that we breathe, which is absolutely terrifying. That's Because <laughs> there's not a lot you can do about that. No. Mm. And is it primarily fish then, consumption of fish that causes this? Yeah, and, and shellfish. So bivalves, mollusks, fish, crustaceans. Yeah, in fact, they're big high concentration of microfibers because they typically filter the water to feed. That's their That's feeding their job. mechanism. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And there's been some really interesting studies around, can oh, you no. use farms of shellfish bivalves to filter seawater, um, which you probably could, but the scale of such a thing would have to be enormous. <laughs> All right, we're going to interrupt the action here for a brief little commercial. And I just want to say that I bet you didn't realize when you clicked on this episode that it was going to be as interesting as it was. I'm riveted with this story so i want to get back to it really quickly but before we can do that i would just like to remind you to please rate the show five stars please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice leave a nice review help the podcast grow and the number one way that you can help me grow my mission of sharing and changing the way we think about personal success and global success is to share an episode like this with somebody who needs to hear it. Share any of the content with anybody who needs to hear it, and I'll be forever grateful. Help me spread the word. Help me grow this podcast together with you. So that's it. That's my pitch. I'll say it every time. And now let's get back to Dr. Kyle Grant. And you hear these stories. I mean, we're already afraid of fish for things like mercury. So many, I don't know if you've noticed, there have been quietly a lot of celebrities who have been hospitalized from mercury poisoning in recent years. I haven't seen an article about this really anywhere, but it's happened to quite a lot of individuals separately just from consuming too much fish. Or they ate a lot of fish in their mm, diet. That's terrifying. And famous people, like I think Tony Robbins, you know, famously ate fish every day or something like that, talking about the health benefits of fish. He'll start each morning with fish and some spinach, and lo and behold, he ends up in the hospital for mercury poisoning. So now we've got mercury and 
microplastics mm. and possibly radiation and all of these other horrible things from Fukushima and God knows mm-hmm. what else is spewing into these oceans at this point. So it's interesting that fish, so got to cut out the fish, I guess. <laughs> that's, that's step one. All right, fish, no water, and stop breathing. Well, we're all wearing masks, but uh, you know, it's probably one of those cases where the masks that we put on our face are probably causing us to inhale microplastics, if we're being honest, right? There's probably a fairly good chance that these porous kind of fibrous masks are just direct. Okay, now I'm not going to sleep. Now I feel terrible. <laughs> All right, so clearly we've stumbled upon a really big problem at this point, and you realize this is a massive industry. Do you feel like you've been able to play some small part in pushing for that legislative change? Have you been lobbying, or have you been increasing awareness via your company in the last few years? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of the main purpose around what we do is education, right. you know, I mean, you can build a business around just doing people's laundry and many of those businesses around the world exist and they have for as long as time, right? Laundry is one of the oldest circular economies. You don't just wear a t-shirt or sleep in your bed sheets once and throw them away. Round and round and round they go. And, you know, there are lots of kind of Uber Forex style laundry apps that exist out there. Uh, that will find these small mum and pop dry cleaners or laundrettes and connect you with them and you can get your laundry done. Happy days. But they're all using these antiquated, archaic processing methods. You know, some still clean your clothes in petrol or gasoline. Mad. Absolutely mad. Um, But they do. And, you know, our, our kind of first mission is lifting the lid on the industry and saying, hey, look, this is actually the state of the union, so to speak. Um, take a look what do you think and people obviously go what the fuck <laughs> this is awful that's why didn't you tell good. me about this and we're like yep that's that's what we think too and this is what we're doing to try and solve this problem we're not perfect look i'm I'm not going to sit here and evangelize and say that we are but we do know where the problems are and that's kind of where we're we're you know putting a lot of our efforts and we've been able to demonstrate that through that kind of open honesty that people are listening and interestingly fashion and the industry around the circularization of clothing is starting to play a really big role in our growth hmm. so we've seen just in the last year or so the emergence of renting clothing and buying clothing secondhand or re-commerce has grown massively since the pandemic you know people are looking for value in places where they weren't before and maybe have slightly less disposable income and also more of a conscious consumer mindset. You know, I think people are starting to think, do I really need to buy that new or could I buy it from a thrift store, right? And because of that, we found that cleaning and the washing of those items, either between rentals, like let's say I'm renting your shirt, for example, if I do that, I probably want it washed before I wear it and you probably want it washed before it goes back. Yeah, exactly. Um, And if you're buying secondhand clothes, The ones that are laundered, they look good, they smell good, they're stained free and they look vibrant, sell faster and they sell for more money. It's it's simple um, psychology. And so we've seen a lot of growth in those those markets, so much so that myself and Tom, our COO, were up at COP26, the big environmental summit in Glasgow last week and the week before, you know, telling this story and just, you know, really explaining the mission that we're trying to achieve. And it certainly was well received by lobbyists and policymakers, as well as you know, the British Fashion Council and people like that, that obviously lead entire industries 
moving forward. So I think the zeitgeist for circular fashion and a sustainable washing platform such as ours is very much in the forefront of people's minds. And long may that continue. (laughs) Yes, indeed. And from the perspective of one of your customers, they just put their laundry into a bag. You come, you pick it up. Some days later, it comes back clean and folded. How does that work from their point of view? Yeah, that's literally it, almost okay. to a T. Um, and that kind of mechanism can either be, you know, as you need it or ad hoc, or it can be at the same time every week. So you just build it into a schedule, um, you know, like we all kind of do naturally. Or if it's a business, typically it is a schedule, but a much more rigorous and high flux one. So let's say if we're serving a hotel, for example, or a gym, then you may be going every single day collecting dirty towels and bed sheets and then coming back. Um, the exciting part that I think is where we'll see our greatest growth is in those circular fashion enterprise level supports of you know, massive, I think in the US you'll have heard of ThreadUp, um, which is obviously the fastest growing um, thrifting platform. All of those items really need to be washed and sanitized. And our technology can do that in a cost effective way, which obviously increases sales and reduces the footprint of CO2 and water that would it would otherwise take to manufacture those items new. Um, but you're absolutely right. It very much is as simple uh, as possible and a convenient mechanism that fits into people's lives. That's great. It has to be. What's, what's your current capacity at this moment? Yes, we have three sites, uh, or lagoons, as we call them. One in Oxford, one in Cambridge, and then one in Battersea in London. And early next year, we'll probably be breaking ground on a much larger one uh, somewhere in the southeast of England that will serve most of the UK, which is very exciting. Um, oh. And we turn through at the lagoon level, uh, our smallest lagoon will do two and a half tons of laundry a week. Our Whoa. largest one is able to do probably between five and seven and a half on a kind of single shift, but they were designed to operate round the clock, just like an Amazon fulfillment center or something like that. And that's kind of where we're getting to. Wow. So it's a lot. That is a lot. And if I'm not mistaken, so you started all of this. Was it 2018 that you reached the first customer? So in three years, you've come a long way. Yeah, it's funny when you think about it. And I think, honestly, it would be a lot further still if it hadn't been for COVID because, you know, the pandemic really hit us in the teeth, you know, back in February, March of last year you know, all service businesses like ours kind of fell off a cliff, especially the ones that served hospitality, you know, restaurants, hotels, bars, anywhere where people go. <laughs> we were like, oh, shit. Nope. Um, but we doubled down into, you know, doing washing for the NHS, which is our um, kind of public health service here in England, and the COVID vaccine development as well, making sure that all the people participating in the trial, as well as the researchers, PPE, um, lab coats, scrubs, things like that was laundered and sanitized, obviously critical to prevent transfer between people. And that was a really good moment for us to show the world, look, look, no, 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 we are reputable. You can trust us to it make works. sure that your laundry will be sanitized. And we've just kind of gone from there, which is great. So when, when you started this, how quickly did you have some sort of validation to where you knew you were onto something? Was it almost immediate? Mm. Were there difficult moments? Yeah, I think it would have been probably eight months in where we'd had a couple of small micro validations, things like I'd be cycling around 
um, with my bike and my backpack and somebody would stop me in the street and say hey do you do laundry I'd say yes and they'd be like ah I own an Airbnb it's a nightmare I'm always doing laundry and I'd be like perfect here's your quote and they'd be like great you know can you double it if you can get it back to me tomorrow and it's like oh this is all right um but it was when we partnered with a large laundry processing facility to do the processing side and I went to visit it um that I was like oh shit this is awful (laughs) you walk in Uh. you get hit with this blast of like hot wet chlorinated yeah air, i was gonna say that like chlorine really dank swimming Ugh. pool yeah i know it's really nasty Ugh. yeah and all facilities like that in the uk kind of are the same i went to see one after the after the other and they got from bad to worse and that was that moment where i was like ah this is perfect it's so crap it can really be innovated a lot faster um there's great people in the industry, you know, lots of legacy businesses run by, you know, kids that have inherited it from their parents, who've inherited the business from their parents. But the technology, the time and the attention to the industry just has never been there. And therefore, they've kind of just been left alone, uh, which is a real shame. I don't know if you know this, but uh, half of those so-called family businesses are actually mafia fronts. Have you ever seen a mafia movie? Have you noticed that? <laughs> They're always yeah. it's always How a laundry thing. <laughs> hey, it's like Vinny's laundry. Yeah, but then it's actually yeah. you know they blow up the laundry truck because that's uh, another joke. But uh, <laughs> I'm sure. It's, it's but good. the point I mean, is, I guess in those movies, I suppose it's one of those things that nobody really thinks about that everybody accepts, but nobody thinks about it, and that's why it was a prime target for mafia movies because who's gonna stop a laundry truck? right? A quote unquote laundry truck. Mm -hmm. So nobody thinks about this. I go in a hotel. We know there's lots of laundry, but I don't think about that. I just sleep on the bed. I don't have to worry about it. But of (laughs) course, somewhere there's massive machines running 24 seven to keep a single hotel afloat. So it doesn't surprise me at all that you walked into a nightmare scenario. Um, (laughs) Have you been able to patent your ideas? Is that something that you're working on or have done? Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're going through that process at the moment. I think what we wanted to do first was operate the system end-to-end. So we had customers, we acquired them ourselves, we picked the laundry up using our own team on our own bikes, washed it ourselves in our own facilities to get what you call the process level um, validation. So you can see end-to-end where the bottlenecks are, and they're the bits where the sexy IP needs to lie, right? Because if they're bottlenecks for us, they're more than likely going to be bottlenecks for other people as well. So we're patenting several of those areas that we'll use as a competitive advantage. Obviously, scale our model across the UK and worldwide, but may in the future decide to license those technologies to other operators in geographies where you know, they have a better footprint and they know how to operate in the market better than we ever would. So we are building defensibility in those two cases. That's brilliant. And I saw that in 2019, you joined Oxford's Elevate Accelerator Cohort 2, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel that Oxford supported you in your entrepreneurial endeavors, or was this really something that you took upon yourself? Yeah, no, it was brilliant. I cannot say enough how supportive that process was. Um, so just for some context, the um, Elevate program is run by the Oxford Foundry, which is a separate entity to the Oxford Business School, which is typically where you go if you want to get an MBA or become a chartered accountant, things like that. 
Um, but it's a very, very uh, bespoke and welcoming environment. You know, it's where people that actually want to get the shit done go, <laughs> typically, where you'll find the hackathons at weekends and people hanging out and testing MVPs and things like that. Um, and the Elevate program is where it's a competitive selection. You know, you apply, get interviewed. Uh, it's pretty rigorous, um, but it is free for the ventures. You don't have to pay cash or equity, which is typically the model with like Y Combinator right. and Founders Factory in the UK, things like that. Um, and that's because of the awesome philanthropic donors, um, you know, like Reed Hoffman, there's Stone, uh, Meltwater. There's, there's lots of them that donated and then obviously opened up their networks too, to the ventures inside to do workshops around marketing, growth, hacking, blitz scaling, you know, all these kind of things, which help take a small idea and an unsexy one in our case and give you the legs to really start running with it. Um, we certainly wouldn't be where we are now without that support. I didn't know that Reed Hoffman was involved in Oxford. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. Interesting. But I do recall him writing an article a couple years ago, my first introduction to the word blitz scaling on LinkedIn, of course, ironically, mm -hmm. where he said, we work blitz scaling or blitz failing. <laughs> and of course, this was foreshadowing <laughs> the demise of WeWork. Yeah. So did he yeah. coin that term? I feel like he might have, or is that something that was known well, before him? Blitz scaling? Blitz scaling or blitz failing? I think he did. Yeah. It I sounds so. like I something. So. Um, yeah. But you mentioned- I'm, I'm pretty sure. Biz Stone sounds like something that would have happened. You mentioned Biz Stone, Twitter co-founder, and you were able to uh, raise two million dollars in 2020, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. from Biz Stone. Yep. Was that the beginning of your raising capital, 2020? Yeah, we'd done a few rounds before that. So our kind of okay. fundraising journey has been um, kind of friends and family angel round, if you like, yeah. first, um, just the very, very bare bones MVP. Um, then a pre-seed round and then a seed round that was split into two tranches, one in 2020 you've just quoted uh, that Biz was part of, um, amongst other awesome angels and some funds too, and then another one earlier this year as well, to which we also attached a crowdfund campaign so members of the public could, could invest in Oxwash too, um, which was awesome and incredibly well orchestrated by one of our team, Ella, because it's a very difficult thing to do well. Um, lots of people fuck it up <laughs> and there's all sorts of ways you can do that because you, you really are opening up your business to everyone, right? And you don't have control over how people are going to, you know, reciprocate, respect and promote your virtues or <laughs> or your failings in, in, in the interweb. So that was a great experience and really nice to be able to say to anybody, you know, become an investor, become an ambassador, join our mission. Um, we raised half a million pounds in 15 hours, which was awesome. Whoa. And what platform did you use? So in the UK, the top one is called Crowdcube. Okay. Uh, there's another one, which is also very good, called Cedars. I believe in the US, there are crowdfund platforms that are now starting to get major traction because of a law change. Um, but don't quote me on that, but I'm I pretty sure know. that is true. Yeah, here we talk about Indiegogo, Kickstarter, various other things are generally mm. what you hear. Haven't heard of crowd. Yeah, more product focus. Yeah, yeah. Right. I think that you will in the near future. Right? I'm sure I will. My ignorance knows no bounds. That's one thing the show has taught me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> somebody will, but I might not. So 
continual funding rounds, another $7 million in September. So things are going well. Do you feel that you have secured enough funding to go for the next little bit, or is it still an active concern? Mm, no, we do. So we've, we've definitely got more than enough kind of dry powder in the keg, so to speak, to get where we want to. I think we're seeing such phenomenal growth in that circular fashion space that I mentioned that it really is a bit of a land grab. Um, and we want to build out our platform quicker. So I've got no doubt I'll be back on the fundraising trail in the very near future to raise the capital to do that. You know, there's a lot of technological advances and investment we need to do in our software, in our tools that we use to um, basically automate the cleaning and delivery of things. Um, and that's something that has never really been done properly before with the lens of sustainability. It certainly has when it comes to just throw chlorine and water and people at the problem. But when you can't do that, um, it becomes much harder. So I definitely will be raising likely our Series A with the team early next year. That's that's great. And you're a certified B Corp already. So getting there. Getting there. We're oh, hoping okay. the next few weeks. The next few weeks. Yeah. We're right there. Bloody hopes. So. Oh, ooh, exciting. <laughs> Very nice. And obviously you've been recognized as a social entrepreneur on Forbes. You've achieved quite a lot of accolades, I've noticed now. Um, have any of these awards, I mean, there's always mixed feelings when I talk to founders about these awards. Have they benefited you in any material way or do you feel like it's all fluff? The list is, for those listening, it's quite an impressive list of awards that you've accumulated so far. <laughs> That's kind of you to say. I think um, for the most part, it makes the biggest difference to the team, right? It's the people that you're working alongside where they can feel like the hours and extra hours often that are being put in are being recognized by other people than just, you know, their colleagues and peers. And I think that's really rewarding. And we often do celebrate those awards at the team level. Um, you know, lots of awards do tend to focus on an individual, um, but that individual wouldn't be where they are without the team, you know, and standing on the shoulders of those giants, so to speak. So I think for that reason, it's been brilliant and, and long may it continue. Um, I would like to see more awards for people kind of within businesses rather than leading businesses, if I'm honest. Mm. You do see them occasionally. Um, there are lots of kind of trade show level um awards where you get you know best new intern or top new trainee and things like that but you certainly don't at the level of the kind of forbes or um you know tech nation and things like that but maybe maybe someday maybe in the future okay well i i agree and that's something that other people have brought up as well because again you're defeating the purpose of all of this which is to solve a problem the goal is to achieve a reduction in microplastics and these other things. So we should focus perhaps more on the problems themselves and the legislation than on giving accolades to the people. But that's just a weird thing with our society in general. Uh, I've mm -hmm. explained to you the premise of this show. Obviously, my idea is that traditional models, both in a global sense and also in an individual sense, they don't really work anymore. Um, now, you may prove or disprove that, but do you feel that there has been something counterintuitive that you have done or against the grain that has led to your success? Any sort of unusual thing that you believe that others maybe don't? Mm. God, there's so many small ones. They kind of all add up. Um, I think 
the kind of biggest ones I've mentioned it already are you don't need to boil shit to get it clean. Um, you can use technology to do that. Um, I think also, you know, the macro one is that you can have profitability and save the planet at the same time. I think historically people have seen those two things as mutually exclusive, yes. which they're not. You know, if you think about it at the macro level, if you have certain costs of goods sold, like electricity, water, gas, chemistry, all this kind of stuff, and you use less but get stuff even more clean, obviously that's better for your business. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. And I think a lot of people are like, no, 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 that doesn't make sense. It must be crap. It must be low quality. And you're like, no, that's that's not it. And it comes down to just proving that time after time, right? Doing the basics right, turning up on time with clean clothes that belong to the right person. You know, if you get that right and then back that up with actually we've offset this amount of CO2 versus you doing it yourself. You save this much water, you know, and that, all that hassle as well. It's very powerful. Um, so I think that's probably the most counterintuitive thing that we're still trying to beat. I haven't beaten, but it's a great challenge. That is a great challenge. Now, in your personal life, do you feel that have there been significant setbacks? Have there been moments where you thought about giving up? Were there really tough times on this path? Mm, yeah, I mean, everyone has this, right? And multiple times. Um, you know, there's all sorts of things, whether it's, uh, I mean, the obvious elephant in the room is, you know, the impact of COVID on one's business and will it recover? You know, will the world be the same? Is everyone just going to live at home until they die now? <laughs> it's all, you know, back in the height of the pandemic, it's pretty, pretty scary, right? Like, yeah. honestly, we had people riding around empty streets in Oxford on our bikes wearing hazmat suits and gas masks. It was crazy, absolutely mad. But, you know, you just didn't really know, you know, is it airborne? Is it super, you know, the media just, you know, span up this massive frenzy of anxiety. And, you know, as a responsible business, you have to just go with the lowest denominator and protect your team. So um, that was pretty scary. And there were moments there where I was like, maybe there's just no market for this anymore. Maybe Airbnb is dead. You know, people are just going to work from home. They don't need to wear suits, so they don't need to get anything other than their tracksuit bottoms and T-shirts washed, <laughs> which they can probably do themselves. Um, we had a couple of bits of fuckery around raising uh, rounds of fundraising and people dropping off at the last minute, you know, trying to halve your valuation the day before you sign paperwork, things like that, which is just bad practice. But it's it's, you know, gives you a thick skin and you learn to avoid the signals that would otherwise attract, you know, investors and backers that aren't good for you. Mm. Um, so despite them being really awful experiences in the moment, I'm very thankful that they happened to learn from them, for sure. You learn how to recognize sharks, perhaps? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, blue blood in the water. Typically mine. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Of course, you are the victim, yes. Um <laughs> Would you say that you've achieved some sort of balance in your personal life at this moment in time, or is it all go, go, go? Do you mm, have a sustainable level? Yeah, definitely level? getting better. Okay. Yeah, 100%. And I think that, that comes down to um, so my partner's incredibly supportive and holds myself in check. You know, I can only make the right strategic decisions for the business if I'm in a good headspace, right? If I'm burning myself out, getting fat, eating crap, not sleeping, that's not a good use of you know business expense on making good strategic decisions so you do kind of owe it to yourself and the business to have that downtime 
and decompress to be able to make decisions that are more sustainable for the business and impactful. Um, and I think that, that the pandemic's actually given people an opportunity to reset that function. You know, we were all kind of barreling into WeWorks and kind of virtue signaling about the work ethic pretty hard uh, back in 2019. And I think the pandemic's awful, don't get me wrong, but maybe one of the tiny silver linings has been a reset in the work-life balance for many people, uh, which I think was overdue, for yeah. sure. I completely agree. A lot of people have woken up uh, as if from the matrix, and they think, wait a minute, why did we mm. accept all of that stuff? And now... Yeah, got to work smart, yeah. right? Rather than just burn yourself out. People with families are thinking, hey, I, I like seeing my kids sometimes. <laughs> That's kind of nice. Yeah. So there's a lot of that. Yeah, I've spoken to a lot of people. Like, that are, you know, I, I love seeing my kids and it makes me work harder because now I'm doing something for them, you know, building their future. And the more time I spend with them, the more I want to give back in the work that I do. So, you know, it, it definitely fulfills the cycle. Well, that's wonderful. And speaking of kids, the TikTok generation, Gen Z, whatever you want to call them, the 13, 17 year old kids. Do you have a message for the younger kids out there? What would you like to say to them, either about building a business or about the issues that you're trying to solve? Any of that? Mm, I think my message would be don't give up on the older generations. You know, I think we've handed this ticking time bomb to the youngest generation that are aware of it. And it's terrifying for them. I think eco anxiety uh, is real, you know, for a lot of young people thinking, fuck, am I actually just walking towards this apocalypse of plastic and, you know, climate change and flooding. And we, they may well be, you know, I, I, I'm a scientist by training and the signs are not good. You know, COP did not, you know, achieve the agreements we need to combat that. But hopefully they will in the next few years. Um, but there are a lot of people working really, really hard to try and offset that and find those people, join their teams or start your own teams to, you know, take the baton on. And I think together with that force of goodwill and intensity, we certainly can avoid a global climate collapse, or at least I hope so. Completely agree. And I don't know if you're into a stoicism or philosophy, but there's a Marcus Aurelius quote that the worth of a person is measured by what they devote their energy to. And I really love that quote. And it's certainly been a catalyst for me focusing on this because it's easy, I think, for intelligent people to become cynical. It's incredibly easy to become cynical, to become jaded, to believe that everything is hopeless, that there's nothing we can do. And at a certain point, you realize, well, that may be true, but that's not a way to live your life. And it's certainly not a good use, in my opinion, of our time on this planet, as brief as it might be. So whether we achieve our objectives or not, Simply devoting ourselves fully to something that can prevent some of these issues, I think, is a noble pursuit. So I think what you're doing is tremendous. And I'm very, Thank you very much. honored that you sat down and, and shared your story with me. I think it's, it's actually more fascinating. And that's, that's the beauty of doing this. I often learn things that I didn't know I didn't know from conversations like this. And what on the outside seems like a relatively simple or straightforward thing. If you look at your website and, and that's by design, obviously for your would be customer, it has to be a simple, straightforward thing. But then when we talk more, you dive under the surface a little bit and you see that there's a lot of machinery and moving parts and really cool things going on that you're doing. So 
I'm uh, deeply humbled that you took this hour and spent it with me. So thank you very much. My pleasure. It's a lovely conversation. Thank you very much indeed. And, uh, of course, I'd like to leave the last word to you. So I'll give you the floor. Anything that you want people to do or donate to or focus on or visit or support you in any way, the floor is yours for the final thoughts. No, that's very kind. I think my first thing would be try buying secondhand clothes. The you know good that you can do by giving a garment an extra life is massive, and it's what you don't see. You know, to manufacture a pair of jeans is twenty years of your drinking water. It's bonkers. You know, if you can go down to a thrift store and give something a, a new home, a second life, maybe a third life, maybe even a fourth, it, it's phenomenal and a massive impact. Um, and you can find some gems in those stores. So that would be my uh, my one tip. Okay, great. You've got a convert over here. I can't wait until your stuff comes over here to the west coast of the U.S. Probably won't be too many years, I'm sure. <laughs> Maybe a couple, but hopefully not. You'll be here soon <laughs> enough, and I look forward to that hopefully day. Months. Oh, really? Well, months all right. Well, draw me a line. <laughs> yeah, we'll keep in touch. Um, again, thank you so much. Pleasure to meet you. And uh, with that, the official podcast is over. Well, another amazing episode in the can, and I am constantly blown away by how these seemingly small things always turn into something more once we actually sit down and talk with these brilliant founders, people much smarter than me. This is no exception. When I first sat down with Dr. Kyle Grant, I didn't know what to expect in today's chat, but I found a depth and breadth of thought that was truly inspiring and it's clear that this man is up to something massive. Now, if you enjoy stories like this, please share this episode. Share it right now with somebody who needs to hear it. Share it on LinkedIn, share it on social media, share it on your platform of choice. Rate the show five stars. Leave a nice comment, leave a nice review. That's really all I ask for delivering all of this value. The reason that we're here is to change the way people think about their own lives and careers and to change the way businesses and people who run the planet think about business. As he so eloquently said, there has been this false dichotomy between making money and doing things that are good for the planet. I aim to prove that we can do both. So if you like this show, support it in any way you can, and I will really, really, really appreciate it. Also support Dr. Kyle Grant's business, and hopefully it'll be arriving in your town soon enough. As always, thanks for listening to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer, and I will see you again next Friday.